Lifelong readers, you're in the place to be. This is Books of Pop Culture. I'm the master curator, Reggie Bailey. He's the question God, Achille Nazari. Achille, how you feeling? Feeling good. You know, I think I finally got, you know, all that little, the little, I think I told you I had a little gunk up there, um, you know, because I had a new loctician because my loctician is about to go on maternity leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like, you know how those, like, Old school guys used to have like the haircut and they had like the one part that goes down. That's how I feel like I'm looking right now. You, but, I, but I'm feeling good. <laughs> I got I, I got a messy question I want to ask. Okay. Does your like new loctician know this is like a temporary thing or like Whew. you know, I think <laughs> I think I think it's gonna be I think it is. Um she does a I don't know if she knows, um, <laughs> oh. but I, she does a really good detox. So I had a really good detox that I, that I'll probably go back for, um, mm. you know. But I'm gonna leave the, the twisting and the styling up to my initial person. So, um, so you're gonna you're gonna have two locticians. That's more, yeah, yeah, one more than the other. But then I will definitely be using that other one when I need another detox. Well, hey, I just hope they don't listen. Cause she, put, it. she listen. She put up <laughs> in that detox. Now, I mean, I had all kind of stuff yeah. in my head, you know, and it's clean. It's you know, but yeah. I just prefer the stylings of my the person who started it. You know, locks have energy, and so yeah, yeah, yeah no, nah, no doubt, no doubt. And lifelong readers. You know, the fellowship, everybody, right? We appreciate you if you're here because you literally could be anywhere in the world, but you're sharing your time with us. That's a privilege and an honor. So we thank you for, for sharing it with us. Um, and you're probably sharing it on YouTube or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, somewhere like that, right? So you can subscribe if you're there. Follow. You can leave five stars, five-star reviews, right? And a lot of them. And, of course, you could tell people that you enjoy your time spent with us. And then if you want to spend more time with us, you can go to booksofpopculture.com because you can support us everywhere there. You can, um, what did I say? You can support us every way there. I think I said you can support us everywhere there. I guess that's true too, right? Yeah, it works. You know, everywhere, every way, all that. So yeah, yeah. you can um, join the fellowship, our amazing Patreon community, get bonus content, written, you know, visual, audio, all that, right? And then, of course, you can subscribe to the days when you go to bookspopculture.com. That is our newsletter where Achilles pumping out pieces every Monday. I'm pumping them out every Tuesday, and they're getting better every week. You wouldn't believe it. Achilles, man, we 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 prepare for the day, man. We ready to we ready to thrive today because we we've been yeah. surviving. We ready to thrive today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We gotta we gotta. It's all about moving from survival to thriving. You know, sometimes you can get locked into that and. And and that's no good. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we pushing forward today with a TV writer who has written for the Great North and the Daily Show with Trevor Noah and a former contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. She has also written for the Atlantic, Esquire, The New Yorker, Pitchfork, Rolling Stone and plenty of other publications. Our guest today is Kashana Cauley. And we will be speaking to her about her debut novel, The Survivalist, after this Let's quick go. break. Let's get it. Yeah. 
Kashana, thank you so much for uh for taking the time to kick it with us, talk to us about your your very fun, uh very fun and very smart um uh novel. Um we really appreciate it. And I'll say I kind of feel like we're friends already. This is why. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you why I feel like we're already friends. I have right. I have numerous amounts of evidence for this. I think like four uh-huh. maybe. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I'm gonna say is you uh you well actually I might have more than what I think. All right. So first off, we're friends because Disha and Mateo both loved your book, and they're both my friends. They're both our friends, not even my yeah. friends, our friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I know that you know Tracy. Shout out to Tracy at Stacks. Oh episode, yeah, Tracy. Episode She's 19. Like, yeah. I've seen her like twice this month. She like is LA books. You see what I'm saying? Right? Yeah. I love Tracy. Right. I feel like you're also our friend because um, you did an event on Instagram live with Chanello. Chanello's a a good friend of the show as well. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. It was like, it was like four of y'all on three or four of y'all on there. I can't remember exactly, but it was fun though. And then what's the other thing I said? Maybe it was only Disha Mateo. Oh, so at the Mateo event, right? At the Mateo Mm -hmm. event that you did, uh, for as a part of your book launch, um, when y'all were speaking, I made a little comment. I, I forget it, what prompted it exactly, but it was about basically the time that it takes to kind of like become an overnight success. And I made a comment because I had just seen, I had just seen like Z Way talking somewhere. Maybe it was the Breakfast Club or something like that. And she was like, you know, like the the common phrase is, it takes five years to become an overnight success. But she said ten. Right. And when I commented that you were like, yeah, you know, she's not lying either. Like you, you responded just briefly in the comments. Like I was there, like I saw most of it, you know, and I thought that was dope. Like you like attest to it. Like, yeah, like it, she, it did take her 10 years, you know? So those are my stand up show, like seven years ago in this random bar in Williamsburg, she was like fun and all that but she was you know she didn't have her show or anything she was just like a person who we all thought was funny and fun and you know and yeah so like I, yeah I was I mean I don't know if I was there or whatever but I, I've known Z-Way for years it's been fantastic to watch her like glow up I can't believe everything that's happened to her since like 2015 <laughs> yeah, <That's> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. No. and you know forgive me if I maybe did the I was there thing but nonetheless you have seen some of it you know I mean? i'll say that because you know, i don't want to i don't want to spread no rumors on this pod you know what i'm saying but, but nonetheless i feel like we are friends i have my evidence you know we'll see how it goes after this after this show's over okay i'm cool with that i accept all that as evidence we are friends awesome. hey look there it is i would add to that uh Shana. what if i don't have 10 years what should i do uh then um should i be like a uh weekend success or what are you thinking? You can always be a part-time after-school success. Just take three to six p.m. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Just kill it in the afternoon. Yeah, that's like that's like my old shifts at Wendy's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One Saturday morning success. You know, like yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. you grand. Much too cool for seventh grade. It was a thing. <laughs> Pepperan, Pepperan. Mm-hmm. She was one in a million. Look at you. I'm right there now. Who would have thought? Got... So, so it's on me now. So the question is, how are you doing genuinely? When we say genuinely, if you have trapped gas, let us know. If it's too hot where you are, let us know. Or if you, you know, are having a wonderful day, let us know. But how are you doing genuinely? 
Um, genuinely, it's like a nice day today. It's like our first nice day here in LA. It's like finally 71. It's been like 50 and raining for like two months. Like we've been joking about how we accidentally moved to Seattle. Um, <laughs> so this is the first day I like sat outside. I rode outside today and but other than that, I had some leftover Thai spring rolls that did not agree with me. So it's it's mm. a real split decision on how I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I understand. I understand. Kashana, what is the most important lesson you've learned about the business of writing? And feel free to share several if you have several lessons that are most important about the business of writing. Um, I think my big one is probably to just keep giving yourself chances. Before I wrote and published this novel, I did um, journalism, I did essays, I did short stories. I have three drawer books. I, um, I've written for TV. Like I was one of those, I took the long and winding road here. And I, I used to beat myself up for that. I used to be like, oh, you know, I'm doing all this stuff. And my goal was always to do the novel the whole time. So like, what is, the, you know, but you know, what's funny when I finally got to a point where I'm like, I have a book and I would kill for this. And if somebody doesn't publish this, I'm going to like throw an enormous fit, you know, um, everybody was like, it's great that you did all that other stuff. We've heard mm -hmm. of you. And I was yeah. like, hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten years of this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That ten years, that ten years that is ten striking years. back. Mm -hmm. And and so I'll I'll ask, you know, is this is the the route you took, right? Like doing, you know, TV and contributing to all these like big publications. Is that the route that you? So I'll ask this. I won't assume this. I'll ask it. Do you have an MFA? No, I don't. So do you think that? you kind of earned like a, a MFA of sorts, like a create your own MFA through the route you took. And do you think this is a route you would encourage like other aspiring novelists to take? Um, yes, I think I definitely got my MFA the long, like very scenic route, like way. It's hard to say, like, I, I feel like everybody who's coming up now is coming up in such a different environment I mean, plenty of the places where I publish like essays don't exist anymore. I think really, if you're young and you're a writer, you know what it is you need to do. You know where your peers are. You know what the publications are. You'll figure it out. I don't know that my advice from like 2015 is, is really it. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I like that. Um, can you provide your synopsis or elevator pitch of what the survivalist is about and let us know the inspiration behind it. Uh, the elevator pitch is probably just um, a a black woman who's a lawyer uh, dates a guy and ends up falling in love with doomsday prepping instead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> inspiration. Um. There's a lot of inspirations for this book. So my, my parents have this big stash of food in their house. Like they have a whole pantry full of like canned chili and like canned like Mississippi hot tamales and stuff. Just in case, you know, like you never know when like the shit's going to hit the fan and you need Mississippi hot tamales to like save the day, like the canned yeah, one. Yeah. And they, they also have guns. And I was always just like, why? And every time I asked them, I would never get an answer that made any sense. And like, I, I'm a big 
so this answer doesn't make any sense. So this issue doesn't make any sense. Why can't I stop thinking about this? And that's the stuff I write about. But also when I was living in New York in Brooklyn, there were, there was this couple, they were living in the village, like they were in their twenties, a white couple, and they had a bunch of guns. They were house sitting. And so they decided to like start their stash in the house. They were babysitting. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, there's nothing <laughs> happening in your neighborhood. Like the scariest thing is how much like food costs at the diner around the block. Like you're not being threatened by anybody. Like nothing is happening to you. It's like New York is like squeaky clean. Like I don't understand why people do like you don't need a gun there. And but the same thing happened on the end of my block in Brooklyn. Like at the, right on top of this like really fancy ramen shop, this guy was like stockpiling guns. Again, squeaky clean block, squeaky clean neighborhood. Like everybody just hanging out in their brownstones. Like there was nothing to be afraid of. And I couldn't shake those people either. I was like, why are you guys doing this? Why are you guys doing this in New York? And then, so when it came time, time to write the book, I wrote a whole bunch of books that were set a whole bunch of places I didn't know as well as my own block in Brooklyn that I was living at the time. And I think what really made this one come together was like, well, why don't I just write about where I'm living? I love this neighborhood. I feel like it's in like kind of this transition between being like kind of gentrified and kind of not, but I have some old school neighbors who very clearly bought their places in the seventies when like nobody cared and we speak like on the block and all that. And, but there are these new folks that are moving in who have more money. And so sometimes they like do the front of their houses, like they build them out and like fix them and stuff. And, you know, these people kind of colliding who lives in this neighborhood, how are people trying to like hold on to their holdings in Brooklyn and keep being able to live there? Yeah. Yeah. So are, are your parents from the South? No, my grandparents are from the South. My parents uh, are from Chicago. Yeah, yeah. The Mississippi Hot Tamales, like the, the city I'm from is known for the <gasps> Hot Tamales. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm from a city called Natchez and we have like the hot, a hot tamale woman who's like <gasps> gotta be like 25, 30 foot tall. Uh, but the city is like known for the Hot Tamales. So it's funny you said that. Um, I've never ate them um, that I can recall because um, I have a issue with cheese and things that um, things that look like cheese could be in them. Um, and so, but yeah, we're known for them. Yeah. They are delicious. We we always used to get them in the can. My grandparents are from Memphis and Little Rock and mm. New Orleans, and so they're word, word. you know, and I think they just took them up, took some of this, a lot of the Southern food traditions up to Chicago with them from there. Yeah, dope, dope, yeah. dope. Uh, and there's um <clears throat> so this I mean we're about to get into the book but this makes me think of just I'll say a comment that was made in the book um by Brittany where she talks about the two uh black great migrations right she talks about uh you know post 2008 and she talks about um you know in the um in the 20th century and um I just thought about how you just trace the lineage just now from, you know, Little Rock, Memphis, Mississippi, up to Chicago, up to, you know, where you're at now. So that's that's pretty cool. Um, so I see people as the nucleus of a great idea that hasn't come to be yet. Um, this quote from Richard Pryor makes the epigraph or forms the epigraph of the survivalist. Can you talk to us why you chose that as your epigraph? Um, I love Richard Pryor. Um, I love I love his stand up. Um, I love his thoughts about the world that are in that stand up and then also without it. That's from like a 1980 interview with Barbara Walters. Um, that's on the Internet. You can watch like big chunks of it. But I feel like what that quote is getting at is just 
I think a lot of times as people, we think we have these good ideas or we have these big plans and they're bad. Like they're bad plans. But we have so much potential. Like, I mean, people are responsible for, you know, the good and the bad in the world. And the, some of the good is really good and some of the bad is really bad. But I think if you kind of average it out, you get that quote. That's what I was, And this book is very much about people with big, big ideas. Um, yeah. Not very many of which are good, just like, ha but having their own idea about how the world should work and like constructing like a community for themselves and a household for themselves. And so they, they very much are trying to be like a well-formed idea. They just don't have that down. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask about that. Um, that was what I was going to kind of get with my first question. I was like, I, I don't know if they're really good at what they are trying to do. You know, the bunker's <laughs> leaking. Um, they keep dropping all the damn guns on the floor, and you know, I, you know, I was gonna like that for my first question. So I'm glad that you said that because I was like, I don't even know if they're really that good. And, you know, they, and 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 when Aretha Aretha comes into it, you know, she's used to being that good, so that's why she's all like, all right, would you like the 22 caliber? You want to do the house, yeah. etc. Et and cuz is like, uh, my man is like, we don't do that here. Just handed the guns. Like, I don't even know if they know how much the guns worth. You know, just handed the guns. Mm -hmm. We take 254, give me 250. And I don't even know if the people who are buying them know because it just doesn't shoot. Basically, it's kind of the response. There's this sense in the story that there are multiple kinds of survivalists. Uh, there's, there's Brittany, who seems to be kind of preparing for a war and more specifically, possibly a race war. Then there's James, who just really thinks that everything is going to eventually go to shit in general. And then there's Aaron, uh, whose survivalist tendencies seem to be tethered to natural disasters. What things do you think play the biggest role in the separate decisions to become survivalists? And what separates them and what keeps them together? I think they're all joined by trauma i think there's things in their personal backgrounds that they're afraid of and that they think they can be more well pre prepared to confront if they run into them again in the future um i think that they pick a to speak to some of the stuff you were saying earlier some really like sideways ideas about how to, to deal with that trauma and how they might be able to prevent those things and they are not in fact good at what they do but they're they're really scraping for a way to feel safer and like more together than they are but they do take these very dis like different approaches to survivalism and what survival means and i think it forms like a decent amount of the conflict of the book like when they're when they're in the house together you're kind of like why are these people living together this doesn't work at all yeah yeah they're freaking hilarious like they, they are freaking hilarious it was it was a very fun ride like reggie said earlier yeah, no, this this it's unique. It's fun. There's there's a I, there's a lot to say, right? And I am going to ask you this question that I called "Lift Every Bunker and Sing," right? Because um, you know whether it was Hurricane Sandy, you know, Tactical Coffee, right, or or especially right something like this where. You know, Brittany gets some comments from her parents, and I'm, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, but they're essentially saying, you know, you building a bunker is like that's something that white guys out west do, right? And the reason why I mentioned lift every bunker and sing is because, you know, of course, people know lift every voice and sing is the black national anthem, and it makes me think of like 
the idea of like the color of survival, right? Um, could you could you talk to us about who the who the survivalist is saying the idea of survival belongs to? I think in the book, the the majority of the house is black, and they very much want their survivalism to be black. They have seen these other examples of survivalism. And they want to survive, but they want to do it their way. They want to be like faithful to the culture, but they don't know what that means. I think some of it is because they don't see examples. Brittany is probably the closest anybody gets in the book to having an example of what Black survivalist is, but you get the sense that it just what her parents have taught her is just not flashy enough for her. Like she wants that Bundy, you know, maybe we're taking over some federal land, like kind of juice to what they're doing and so she she's out there she's like we need a bunker like why can't we have what they have on some level is like her ethos and i i don't know i just thought it was interesting to kind of watch her and everybody else in the house in general go what is black survivalism like if we were going to get together and decide we were going to survive the apocalypse how would that differ from how white people do it because let's face it it would like i just feel like we don't like a lot of, I don't want to speak for everybody black. I mean, every, we've all got different experiences and whatnot, but just a lot of times I feel like the black experience is not the white experience. Like it's just not what white folks are doing. If we were to go and take some guns and take over some federal land, I remember it took Bundy's like six weeks or something for the feds to come down there and very gently tell them that maybe it was time. to. And I, I think we all know that that wasn't, that would not be how they would treat like a group of us. Mm. We just, we were going to plant ourselves someplace armed on some federal land. And I, I feel like if you're going to get into these doctrines, these things that are mostly seen as white and you're black, you do spend a lot of time going, well, you know, how much of this works for us? And, but also, you know, what could we do that might be faithful to the culture if that's something we believe in? I think one of the fun, the most fun parts of the book is watching them figure that out, actually. Watch them yeah. go, well, maybe we'll have a flag and maybe we'll eat like soul food and Southern barbecue and but we'll have a bunker. Yeah. yeah yeah did you have like some plans on making like some i don't know baked bean preservatives or something is that or <laughs> you know because i was you know i was thinking about that when you were just talking about that i was like ooh, i wonder if they have like i don't know you know crawfish preserves and, <laughs> and you know how would we yeah yeah the world's gone to hell and it's a nuclear blast but what are we going to do about the catfish that we need to fry, you know, so that is something. Um, <clears throat> and then I was also thinking about like the tradition of like black resistance that's kind of floating in there too. Cause my girl Brittany, you know, they was into that kung fu, you know, and so when they out there training, you know, I feel like that's like a part of um, that tradition. I, and I think all of them add something that's like that, right? So, you know, kind of speaking to Reggie's initial question, uh, Nia was raised completely different than anyone. Um, and there's a scene in the beginning of the story when Aretha's contemplating the break-in and its effect on the members of the house. And she considers whether or not Nia will relate to it. Um, she decides that Nia wouldn't understand because Nia is rich. And she goes on to recount the story of Nia's family hiring private security. Um, at first, I had one theory about this, but on my second pass, uh, of, of this scene, I started to think that Nia's question of why anyone would want a second layer of almost cops in their lives on top of the regular cops 
And so I decided on another theory. Nia likes to think that she's different, but I think this extra layer shows that the rich are also afraid of something happening, uh, right? Similar to what you were saying, it's kind of occurring on these very clean blocks, right? And so what do you think is going on there? What uh, What is this fear? Like what causes like this neighborhood who essentially, because my first theory is well, like police are there to protect property. Right, is one thing that we've we've heard, right? And so my first theory was like, hell, they're just trying to protect you know the neighborhood, right, from this unknown threat. But then they have this extra layer that everyone is chipping in on. So it's almost like they don't also trust the governmental layer of police. So what's kind of going on there? What do you think is going on there in the novel? And then also what's what was going on like in New York, uh, on those clean neighborhoods? What do you think was kind of happening there? Um Nia and her people are from Long Island, and I think they've got some of that suburban, well, we've got to protect ourselves from the city ethos going on in her town. And so they have their, but the private security, they do have the cops. And I think they, like Nia's people, even though they're Black, seem to be the sorts of Black people who are kind of like, well, the cops are like, they're not for us, but they're not like as anti-us as they could be. At the same time, I think they're the sort of rich people who like hiring like servant types. And so the the almost cops, like they're building security or the servant types. And they also take that idea of security and make it more intimate. You know, well, these are our people on the mm. inside of the security game. Like the cops are out there and, you know, we don't love them and we don't, we don't hate them. But what if we had these people who had like a cop function in our life who we felt like we could trust more than the regular cops, I think is what's going on there. But yeah, I had put their fears as simply just like Nia's people live on Long Island because they don't want to live in the city. How do they keep the city from getting to them? Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because I was trying to think because that is something that I've seen happen, like even down here, right? In those gated communities, they have like little homie that's riding around in the extra car, right? And like, what does that kind of say about these people who are essentially in control of the city? Right. Because, you know, they are the movers and shakers, but even they don't trust the city, you know, to a certain degree. Um, and so, I mean, it's just a, your own version of survivalism that's kind of tied to your class system. Right. Um, and so if we don't have access to that, then, of course, we kind of go through other means. Right. Um, it's something that I was kind of thinking about when I was framing it. And that's why I was like, hmm, I wonder where I would place that, you know. They also want to protect their wealth. I've always felt that second layer is always just so we want to protect ourselves in the city, but like if the shit really hits the fan, we would like to protect ourselves from the poor people. Like we don't want them coming in and <laughs> grabbing anything in our house and getting our food. News people are very rich, you know, like it's all like decorative vases up in there. And they just, they, you get the sense that she and her family wouldn't want folks to, to do that. If, and so the second layer cops just prevent people literally from getting in her, her housing development. Yeah. 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 And then the police are poor too. So yeah, they could definitely mm -hmm. be the enemy. So we would need that. <laughs> so Kashana, do you want to talk family or cynicism? Cynicism. All right. <laughs> so something I kept saying to myself while listening, you know, cat out the bag, I definitely audio booked uh, the survivalist from start to finish. Right. Is that this is a philosophical novel. Right. Mm -hmm. And the idea gained strength early because 
Aretha says she believes that 98% of people are cynics. As we continue forward, we see people always preparing for their worst fears to come true, whether that is a car accident, being fired, another hurricane. And we also see a survivalist client of Nia's who ponders on what people would do if they didn't prepare for the worst. So I actually have two questions within this one. Um, do you believe that Aretha is correct when she says that 98% of people are cynics? And also, do you believe that the survivalist is a philosophical text? And if so, which branch or idea of philosophy would you associate it with? Mm. I don't know that I go with 98%. But it it's we live in a cynical era. I do feel like there's a lot of people preparing for some idea of the worst. And I mean, as a woman, watching rights of mine get taken away every day if I were to say go to Idaho or whatever this week, it, it is really hard not to be cynical about like folks who don't want me to get basic health care or be able to to be treated with certain medicines or buy things at the drugstore. I just, you know, this is this is not like this is a real dark era to read the news. I And I feel like a lot of the folks who are acting to take away rights from folks these days, you know, they're not operating with the most like optimistic way of, of being. But at the same time, Aretha is a lawyer. That's a really lawyery way to see the world. I used to be a lawyer. I think lawyers assume that everything is just kind of dark and gross and people are just ready to throw dirt on each other and like, a minute's notice. I, you sit there and you watch people fight all day and you get paid for it. And then you're basically also paid to go, you know what, how can we make this worse? But within the interest of our client, like, so how do we go in there and make this fight? Like, you know, how do we throw the bottle this week, Friday at four? And so I think 98% is a really feasible like mindset to get into if you're a lawyer. It's just dark in there. You're trying to beat people at all costs, you, even if, you know, at the expense of their lives or their living conditions or whatever, because you're being paid to do that. Um, and to your second question, yes, it's a philosophical novel. I think it's really an exploration of absurdism and on one end, but also... It asks a lot of questions about what survival is. I think in your comment, you definitely spoke to, you know, there's the literalist bunker approach, but there's also just, you know, what do you do if you get fired? I do think a lot of life in New York when I was living there was survival. It was very much like, so your rent goes up this much every year. Can we afford to live here anymore? Do So we get fired, you know, again, can we afford to live here anymore? And also, what are you going to do? So many of the folks I know were just getting canned every year in some way or another and just being very quiet about it, pretending it was all part of the master plan and then going, well, <laughs> this this career isn't working out. This job isn't working out. Maybe this industry isn't working out. I was in the media for like years when I was living there. That is an industry that is not working out. There are not more jobs in the media right now than there were like 10 years ago. And so there's, there's definitely a point where you're just like, okay, so what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How do I survive? How do I chart a path forward where I can continue to like pay rent and have someplace to put my head at night? How does that work? And also within the book, there's people like there's the community gardeners, and even on some level, they're about survival. You know, how do we get fresh food to the community? How do we continue to sustain ourselves in our neighborhood when nobody cares about us necessarily? Or even when they care about us in ways that don't benefit us, like they would like to buy this vacant lot and put up some sort of high rise and not have the folks who are a part of our community necessarily live there. Yeah. Um, 
so I guess, yeah, absurd. it's an absurdist novel and it asks questions about what survival means in 2023. I think it's a much broader answer than, so we build a bunker, so we have guns, so we focus on the end times. I think a lot of folks are, today are making less money than they used to. Wages are down. Um, I think yeah. a lot of folks are wondering, you know, how do I put food on the table? Like starvation is up. How do I pay my bills? How do I continue to live near the people I love and the city that I want to be in? Yeah. Word. Hey, so a couple of things. <clears throat> First off, that was all that was like fly as hell. Um, second, I recently read like towards the end of 2022, I read uh, The Stranger by Albert Camus. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I actually thought about that a few times while I was reading your book, just with, with the usage of certain words like meaningless and uh, existentialist. Right. Like I like the way they were used. Right. I was like, damn, this is this this is coming off like super like philosophical. Right. Um, and, and it's interesting because I've noticed like the novels that are considered that like I like I was going into like that novel in particular thinking, OK, Camus about to say some big ass words. I'm not really going to understand. This ain't going to be a simple story. It was a very like simple story. It's very easy to read. Right. Mm -hmm. But you kind of see like the ideas formulate through the simple language. Um, and I think you have a, a brilliant way of doing that as well. And I just I just am curious to see if like more readers will, you know, pick up on that just, you know, as they, they venture into your world. Well, I hope so. I'm first generation college. I don't know like all the fancy words. I was definitely <laughs> a person who was just like, can I even be a writer? I don't know that I'm smart enough for this. I haven't read like tons of the stuff that people seem to read before they become writers. I'd never heard of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 No. Listen, listen, I felt the same way. I felt the same way about doing a show for a long time. You know, when I was studying, uh, not this particular, but, you know, like getting to be able to do something like this. But when I was um, like looking at like other authors and, and how they would like talk about these things, I was like, how do they know to say that? Like, you know, when prompted, like and they don't go with like the ums and et cetera, et cetera. And I was like, maybe I didn't. You know, I haven't read the right stuff, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, you know, uh, I guess it just you just find your way, you know, because <laughs> I've had like my flashes of moments right but I, I definitely wanted the same thing another thing i wondered that you brought up um when you were just snapping um was like i think about that all the time how are y'all surviving in like these big cities because like i work virtually right and i know um you know this cost of living here is i don't think it's really changed i mean more than than that much right i'm in mississippi but like i'm making the same thing that people that I know live in LA are making. And I know that cost of living is exponentially higher. Same thing for folks that are on that Eastern seaboard. And I'm just like, how are they surviving? Like when I see these articles and stuff about what's happening with rent. Um, and then like they're doing multiple jobs, right? Is is one of the ways that they're doing it. They have the other job. But then it's like, no wonder there's so many issues in terms of mental health and trauma, et cetera, because you're doing that. And at that point, now you're just finally making the ends meet. It's not that you're thriving. You're just finally making the ends meet. And, and it's just, it's crazy for me. And I, and I also know that there's like some research being done now about people migrating back to the South mm -hmm. because of that very reason. Um, you know, but yeah, I, I think about that all the time. It's, it's bananas. Yeah. No, nah, and, and I'll just add, man, like it's ridiculous because I'm I'm in Delaware. So 
and, and part of the reason why I'm still here is because of that. Like when I when I look at how much it costs to live somewhere like DC, New York, that ain't appealing to me. I'm not like I'm I'm not rushing to that. Why would I rush to that? Especially sure. if I can get the same type of money out here. Like, why would I leave this right to, to go over there? Like, don't get me wrong. I know there's there's always like rewards on the other side of the struggle, but it's also like, yo, privilege is a thing too. And if you can create some type of privilege for yourself, why run to the, the struggle? You know? Um, it's just I don't know. I like that. I'm gonna bring the congregation to page 136. Uh, speaking of uh, having a little privilege here. I'm going to read. It says, Aretha made it to the block that held her and Nia's favorite diner. Nia was so prim and proper and well-manneredly rich with her family money and her long waiting list of people dying for therapy. Uh, she loved Nia, but Nia had no idea how it might feel to throw life's rules in the garbage because they weren't working for you. She had grown up rich and went to college and done what her rich parents did and found fulfillment in that. And to Reggie's point and kind of what we were just talking about, when uh, on my first pass of this particular passage, I thought to myself, it is really easy to play by the rules when you're winning. Mm -hmm. Because when you're winning, the rules serve you and help you stay in your position. Do you think that's true for Nia? Because I think what, another thing that Nia does for me is blur the lines of classism. I always say like, you know, racism is classism's ugly cousin, right? And so here's Nia. She got the money, right? And she's still black, which is, you know, essentially one of the reasons she has, like, that proximity uh, with Aretha and some and some things that are, you know, um, where they where they have that they have in common, right? But I wonder, the reason that she's, so she's blurring the lines, and so I wonder, is that a fair assessment of her uh, made by Aretha. Do you think that's a fair assessment of her? And what do you think about that idea of it's easy to play by the rules when you're winning? I think that Aretha is being incredibly unfair. I don't care how much money you have in this country, you are still black. Just the other day in my house, we were talking about that, like there was an NBA player in New York a few years ago who got his leg broken by the cops. Like mm -hmm. he was in yep. the NBA at the time. They that's smashed that thing. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. mm -hmm. It was, it was Cephalosha. Yep, yep. yep. Yep, and he's sitting there making millions of dollars a year, and that doesn't protect him from anything. Like he can just he can go out there and get his leg broken by the cops. I, you know, Nia is rich, but and she's got like those two levels of security we talked about. But she's still black. She's still in New York. Like it's still, she's not fully protected from anything. Aretha just it would be she would kill to be where Nia is though. She would kill to be in like some sort of sense of security. There's a sense like Nia owns her own place, which in New York is a really big deal. It's really hard to own your own place. Like owning your own place is not just the price that it's, it's sold for and like the broker's fee or whatever. There's usually something called a maintenance charge that might be like a thousand dollars a month. So you buy the place and you pay the mortgage and you pay the fees and all that. And then you pay another thousand dollars a month. So you've paid the whole place off. Right. And then let's say, and then it's still, like a thousand, it could be more than that. I'm using that thousands an So it's hard. Aretha looks at this and just is just like, I have worked really hard to be here. I've worked really hard to escape Wisconsin. I've worked really hard to be a lawyer and to be good at what I do. I am good at what I do. And I even, all things considered, make a decent amount of money in like a big city to do what I do. And I am still not Nia. And I will probably never be Nia. And I will never feel safe and secure in my existence here and what I make and being able to stay here and have the career that I want, like Nia can have. So I think she's being unfair, but there's still a big distance between those two. 
it yeah. is different. There's, you know, Nia has family money. Aretha doesn't have family money. That's a big difference in this country. You know, even if Nia does not have the most gilded existence on earth because she is still black and so she's still going to get some shit. It, it's just different to own your own place in a big city. It's different yeah. to have that, that kind of money. Yeah, I'm glad I read that right. Because I was like, I feel like she's, I mean, I get it. You know, like, I get it. But, you know, Nia, uh, Nia's still the homie. Like, she's still mm -hmm. black. She's still, y'all probably still gonna get in trouble together walking around out there. You know, I'm like, you know, but but like you said, right, that, there's still that blurring, you know, okay, yeah, she is rich. There are things that she kind of gets, but, you know, like you pointed out with Cephalosha, they still broke that boy leg. And I know they knew, you know, they at least had some semblance. I mean, the Cephalosha about six, 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 seven. Yeah, six, 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 seven. And I think another interesting layer is the fact that he's like Swiss or something like that. He's not even like African American. They just saw they just saw a nigga, quite frankly. Speaking yeah. of they probably like yeah. why, why are you talking? They probably oh Lord. Yeah. Just add another layer of uh, I mean, of course, is we Viewers, we do know it was unfortunate that he broke his leg, but I'm sure he's in a space now where he can chuckle with us about yeah. said leg. Uh, but um, yeah. yeah, dang, that Swiss layer is tough, Reggie. You, you oh, should... I thought that too. I was like, but no. he's not even like a <laughs> no, because that's that's real. Because a lot of times, right, like in in countries, they tend to like the quote unquote exotic black person better mm -hmm. than their respective black person. I mean, this dates. There's even literature about this, a novel called Stoneface from uh, probably, from the 1960s. Yeah, yeah it's, it's crazy. That's probably why he interacted with them a little bit too much. And one thing yeah. led to another. You know, he's probably like, hey, hey, hey. I, I'm not like them. I'm not, I'm not like them. And hey, <laughs> hey, hey, they tightened them on up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man. That was and, a perfect callback, perfect callback. Indeed, man. And, and you know, we, we kind of started down this path, right? Nia and Aaron's ownership of the internal and material um, and material in comparison to Aretha was something that I feel like she was always uh, seeking, right? Um, you see this not only with them owning their respective residences, but even as she's growing up and we hear her talk about white kids who grew up in houses while she grew up in apartments, sewing a thread throughout the novel of owning versus renting but also the internal and the material can you speak to us about what is being said about owning versus renting when it comes to the internal and the material throughout the survivalists uh in addition to the home owning thing aretha is just violently jealous that Nia and Aaron own their own businesses and don't have to work for people. She is having the experience of working for someone else and it is not working out and she just wants to die. It She would kill for that level of control over her life that they have. Nia just goes and sees her clients all day and then she just in her own apartment where she lives and it's all just very chill and she has complete control over that. And Aaron does too. Aaron has gone through so much stuff in the workplace working for other people but he finally got to a point where he just doesn't have to do that and honestly he seems they both seem just safer and secure and much more happy for that. And so a lot of her is just like, what would it be like to actually control my life to that degree? I don't know what that's like, but I would absolutely kill for that. It's so much more stable and probably relaxing. I've never had this experience, I imagine, to have your own business and really work for you and to be able to make enough money to like keep your 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 apartment or your house. I 
and not have to just walk in and like conform to what somebody else, somebody else's idea of what good work behavior is. It is really hard to go to work and conform in like majority white environments. It's hard to be like acceptable and like, you know what I mean? I feel like I've been in personally, I've been in a lot of circumstances where I even think I'm doing a good job. And then there's just some aspect of office culture that I've just completely missed. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I don't understand the culture as well as I want to, despite the fact that I have to survive in it. And just, man, what would it be nice? What would it be like to like not have to go into work every day and just go, you know what? <laughs> I am trying to fit in here, even though I'm probably never going to fit in. And it's really stressful to me. Yeah. 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 I, um, I thought that was, uh, kind of unique too. Well, not unique, but, but, um, like right on code for like, you know, my girl literally just was a little sick one day, you know, and, and then now it's just derailed everything, you know, and it's almost like, you know, no matter how hard you kind of try to like get those office politics and, and do the whole work twice as hard thing, et cetera, et cetera, it can easily be taken. Um, and, and then by someone, you know, named mum, uh, you know, like that, that would that, I, like I get it, you know. I get it. It really probably grinded her. I have a question that I ask later, but about that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. And um, I, I'm I'm gonna. Hmm. So, do you want to talk about the internet or cults and cult leaders? Cults. I love <laughs> All, right. All right. So this question is a bit messy, but you know what? I think it's gonna. I think it's gonna be fun. So. I decided while reading that Britney is a cult leader in large part based on Britney being the person who Aaron always had to have a disclaimer for such as her testiness. Right. And then James also said that no one says no to Britney. And there's also a moment where Aretha, who's in a predicament, will say, here's Britney's instructional voice when it comes time for her to save herself. I even thought of the stranglehold Aretha fell into when it came to the house on Vanderbilt because of a moment when after some deleting some text messages she received, she talks about primarily wanting to hang out with the people in the house because everyone outside the house just doesn't understand. So can you speak to my allegations of Britney being a cult leader? And what commentary, if any, did you feel the survivalist was making on cults and cult leaders? 100% Britney's a cult leader. I 100% agree with that. I drew her up to be a cult leader. It was so much fun. If you ever get the chance to write a cult leader, you should do that. <laughs> you can just Definitely go, you know what? I have this one character and she's just going to be bashed insane. But you know what? Everyone's going to be into it because both because they, they feel compelled to, but to buy it if by some way, but they also are just absolutely terrified of Britney. You don't cross Britney. It's not done. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, yeah. I don't know that there's a commentary on cults per se. I think she was just a fun character to write. I think more, it's just like, you can always fall in with the wrong crowd. It can be right around the corner. You can be, just be hanging out with somebody and like, like them. And then just all of a sudden wake up and realize you're in a little too deep. That's all. Just survivalism is an extreme way to do it. But I mean, I've had crappy friends. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> like people yeah. have had crappy friends. I'm sure you both had just 
crappy for you just start hanging out with somebody and it's just like this is a bad idea this friend. Is a bad idea <laughs> that's yeah. Brittany she's your bad idea friend she happens to be a survivalist but you know she could she could be in like shooting dogs on weekends or whatever or like you know <laughs> petty theft she could be whatever but just yeah she's Ugh. your bad idea friend she's that <laughs> voice in your head going why don't we do the wrong thing yeah Oh no, and, and it's it's so refreshing to actually like spend time with a character like Brittany, especially after even seeing like Swarm, which just you know as of this recording, it just recently came out, right? Like just seeing like black women like who are allowed to be like insane on the screen, right, and getting away from these politics of uh, respectability. And see, I said the screen. Hope so. Hopefully, I will see Brittany on the screen. I actually have an idea of who could play her. If you, you know, oh, if y'all want to hear oh. it. So yeah. I was thinking, since Brittany is tall and she's dark skinned, right? I was thinking Jodie Turner Smith could be her. Like from uh from Queen and Slim. Oh, okay. okay. You know, I was thinking, I mean, if y'all want to hear my other options, I got them. Because I was thinking, I was thinking Damsony Drees could be Aaron. I was thinking that. Issa Rae, if she wanted to get in front of the camera again, could be Aretha, right? Especially with the weight loss thing, because she did lose weight over the course of Insecure, right? Okay. So I got a couple. I, I don't. I don't know. I didn't think hard enough on on White Man James. I mean, mm. but the three central black characters, I, I think I got them. Well, you know, <laughs> shit. I feel like you gotta go. I feel <laughs> when when someone stumbles into trips and falls and lands on James. Um, <laughs> for some reason, <laughs> for some reason, I saw Trevor Noah there, um, you know, and, and it just, it stuck there. It stuck there in my head. It never really changed. I mean, Trevor Noah is James. Yeah. Yeah. For a moment, the, uh, my man's name. For a moment, Seth Rogen was in there. It was, it was oh, that's great. That actually yeah. is really good. That would yeah, be yeah, yeah. hilarious, bro. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you know, I was having a moment there. Uh, yeah, and I think you know, ultimately, James won out. Um, you know, uh, James, <laughs> James won out. You know, um, he gets in the car and he has that that one moment where he tries to be a decent human being. Um, and, and, and tells that woman how he feels. That woman said, "I well, you know, y'all know what she said." I, I'm just, yeah. you know, and so James has to go on with his life. Um, and uh, walks into uh something that I, some, he walks into something that's probably a little bit better. You know, um, you know, when one door closes, another door opens. Yeah, man, uh, is what the people say. Um, but there's a moment towards the end of the novel when Aretha is consumed with rage at the thought of twenty somethings looking content, and it got me thinking of how rage and survival are linked throughout the story. Survivalists are often associated with the far right, and we all know that they have a lot of rage regarding any number of things. Um, children's coloring books. I mean, you name it, it can be anything. And there's James's rage that uh, drives him to want to drive Aretha into the ground. What do you think is the relationship between rage and survival in your novel? And what other emotions seem synonymous with survival to you as well? 
I think rage is the powerlessness side of the survival equation. I think survivalism is the, okay, so I don't, I don't know that I can control everything, but I can have enough food and I can like filter some water and stuff. And the rage is just like, I am angry about the things I can't control. I'm angry that this is not perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 I can dig that. Yeah. I think, um, cause I think <laughs> I'd have got down in that bunker and it started leaking. I think I think we would have had a real big problem. I couldn't believe that my girl went down there in there at that point, because um, you know, to my point, you know, they aren't that good at like even knowing when it's time to go in the bunker, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I could dig that. I think I could think the rage and the powerlessness are synonymous. Yeah, I can rock. So guns take up an interesting place right with with the young black millennials at the center of the survivalists um you know aretha nia aaron and britney aretha aaron and britney all have relationship to guns one way or the other right while to someone like nia the guns not only symbolize like danger but perhaps like some form of immorality um aretha's relationship however is the one that inspires a lot of the intrigue behind this question because she's a lawyer and she's also familiar with the American standard of morality and ethics. Could you speak to us about what you think the survivalist has to say about the ethics and morality of gun ownership and the dealing with guns in general when you are black? On the ethics and morality, I think the books and says that guns probably aren't going to solve your problems it doesn't really matter what your problems are guns probably aren't the answer um <laughs> i i know that for a lot of folks they feel good like they feel like this big decision that you can make that will like make a difference in your life but the statistics are more like if you have a gun it's more likely to be used against somebody in your home than it is against say an intruder or some other threat to where you're living so Aretha struggles with this and she does understand how the other side lives. She's from the Midwest, Midwesterners, you know, they have guns, like it's part of the culture. But at the end of the day, and she does learn the ethics and morality of things from the law firm too. But at the end of the day, she's, she realizes this isn't actually a solution for anything. This is not healthy and it's not going to, you know, all the big issues she has, like getting fired and like finding someplace. To what would guns even really have to do with any of that? I don't know. I think guns are really just an extension of the fear. It's an, just an idea that we can control being afraid of things by having something terrifying to threaten somebody with. And what was the other part of your question? I completely forgot. Um, yeah, I think you got it. I was just asking about, um, well, I was asking about what do you think the novel also has to say about just dealing with guns in general i even add this too because you know when when there's commentary about like white guys like building bunkers and stuff out west doing all this wild stuff it's kind of like yeah you know this is normal right but there's almost seems like a subtle like double standard about the fact that hey look there is this house with you know these black folk in there and they got all these guns like yo this is like wild as hell like why would they do that right so i guess that's kind of what i was getting at with that uh that last part Brittany is very much in the why can't we have what they have camp. 
you know, she comes from three generations of gun owning Massachusetts natives and they they've had guns and they've been proud of them and they protect themselves as best they can. But I think within that and her desire to talk about the history of it, she acknowledges that black people have had guns, that like we're Americans, too, that we've always been a part of the American experiment. And some of that has involved gun ownership. That that's not weird, that even though the Second Amendment does not explicitly include us, that it's not like it hasn't happened. I mean, I think that they both joke about Harriet. No, she says something about Harriet Tubman towards the end. Aretha's like, what are you talking about? Harriet Tubman did carry. Um, she needed to. She was running. She had a very dangerous job running slaves from south to north. And she, she did carry. Everybody was kind of packing heat in those days who she would have run into. And I, I always thought having them debate her would be wild because it does acknowledge that, yeah, these things aren't meant for us. But are we going to completely exclude ourselves from the American experiment? No, we're not. Whether guns are a bad idea or not a bad idea, in the sense that we are Americans too, why wouldn't we have them sometimes? I don't necessarily think anybody decided in that book that they're a solution to problems in any real way. Like the guns don't really assist anyone in the book. But I think there is also an argument to be made that Black people occupy all corners of the American experience, no matter what they are, whether they're guns or not. And there's no reason why we should naturally exclude ourselves from any aspect of being American. Yeah, yeah. And it made me, of course, you know, I talked about the cold and cult leader and all that. Right. But I also did think of just political parties. Right. Or just just organizers. So, you know, the Black Panther Party, obviously, you know, comes to mind. Right. And I even thought of move to um, out in Philly. Um, you know, they they didn't have, you know, quite the ending that moved it, fortunately. Uh, no, no spoiler or anything when I say that. But, you know, uh, it was I just thought of all that. Right. I thought of cults. I thought of organizations i thought of i guess what maybe move would call themselves like a, a commune or something like that or an organization too but i know they were like the way they live together is is what made me think of move right yeah, yeah. um so i know earlier you didn't choose this right but I'm, I'm gonna ask it now or as a matter of fact i'll ask you two things that you chose something over right so mm. would you rather talk about family or the internet the internet. Okay. So Aretha's skills at investigating and finding those with loads of hits, right? James' desire to go to the darkest parts of the web, the colleague at Aretha's gig who wanted to print out all of his emails, right? Um, or, or we even see a moment where Aretha is, you know, casually mentions like wanting to live a life worthy of Instagram that isn't shared on Instagram, which one could argue is a life that Aaron, with all his vacations, was living, right? Um, we see several people in this novel, several characters, I should say, with unique relationships to the wide world of the internet. And I'm wondering if you could speak to us about, you know, what is being said about the internet's role in our survival uh, within your novel? I feel like everybody in that, that book is part of a generation that is obsessed with the internet and it would be really hard for them to think of a way in which it doesn't shape their lives in some way. I mean, it doesn't really even seem to matter how much time they spend on it. They're still thinking about it. And there's very much a, so I'm thinking about it. How am I engaging with it? How am I presenting myself on a thing that they're obsessed with that I feel is very real. Um, Aretha definitely thinks she can exercise control over her life via the internet that she you know that she can at least know what she's going getting into even if she can't do anything about it or control like the outcomes 
which is hilarious. Like she's just Google in a dream, you know? And, but I feel like that's very real. I feel like people like that. I feel like Google, you know, there's this idea that the information is at our fingertips and we just have to find it that I think she buys into whether that works for her or not. I think, and at the same time, she's aware of how unglamorous that is. And I think her desire for the Instagram aspect of it is just like, but what if my relationship with the internet was fun? I think she sees that as fun in some way, or at least the appearance of fun. But I think in particular, as a person who's worried that she's going to get fired, she's also like, how can I have a more presentable life? Like, how could I live a life I want? But how could I also present like a more fun life? Aaron seems to be good at both of those things. He can live a life he wants, but he can present that, you know, he has his fun stories about coffee bean sorts and then weird hats and like eating the banana leaf and in Ecuador. And he's just living the dream on both ends. It looks effortless like to her in a way. And I yeah. think she would love that effortlessness as opposed to just scrapping on Google all day and worrying about these things. Yeah. Um, and James is just like, the internet has attacked him. It is. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know. It's so funny. I often am just like, so what if you got into a scandal in like 1990? Like nothing would happen to you. But like today's day, like maybe there would be some press conference about it, but like no watch. Like I, you know, as opposed to some bad happens to you today and there's just 30 million internet hits that will live forever. And James is struggling under the weight of that. He's yeah. just going, you know what? I hate living in the internet era. The internet is why I can't get a job and the thing I actually want to do. And I'm forced to drunkenly provide security for these people. Like if it wasn't for the internet, maybe I wouldn't be here. Maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. I would still be at the Washington post. I, I think there's, there is a powerlessness about the internet. You know, every day you could go online and say something that provokes like 18 million hits that ruin your life. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. James is the dark side, yeah, of the internet, as well as like the dark at dark, probably the darkest outlook in the book. Yeah, no, I just I was thinking like, damn, James might be that wild white boy for real. Cause when uh I think it was I think it was Aaron, it was the Aaron or everything was talking about all the tabs he was opening up. I was like, oh, I don't want to see that. <laughs> I don't want to know what he looking at on them tabs. I need no parts of that dark web. Mm-hmm. I know that's all that was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when, was, when you were saying that Aaron makes it all look so effortless, I was wondering, I mean, is Aaron really going to get beans? Or booty, because I mean, good man is traveling. I mean, that much, and so unworried about so many things. You know, um, surely, I mean, and there's only so many beans. You know, um, so I, I, you know, that's not like a. I mean, you can you can leave that unanswered, but um, yeah, I was just wondering, you know, because he seemed to be gone quite a long time. Well, no, Aaron would never tell us the answer to that. He's too smooth for that. That would like yeah. disrupt his his very carefully curated image. Mm, touche, touche, touche. I was hey, so let me tell you, right? Since we're being speculative, I was thinking, man, he ain't even going out the country for real. He's <laughs> <laughs> going he going right down to Miami. <laughs> Hey, and I then mean, like he come back, you know, Aaron come back, he like smell these beans. Yeah, yeah, yeah I got this one in Venezuela. Yeah, he and his, in his mind, he like, I can't believe she's going for this. He's spraying them beans before he coming out. So Aaron, shh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> spray this black ice on these coffee beans. Yeah. She, she, she 
Oh, did he go in the room? James, James, I got it. <laughs> James, James, like, James, like, you won't believe what I did. <laughs> hey, I am not saying nothing further on that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I ain't saying nothing further Those on that. Those are some wild boys. Wild boys. <laughs> Man. So, <laughs> well, so now we're going to get to these these closers. Um, to, to everyone who's ever fired me, this has got to be probably my favorite dedication yeah. as someone who has been fired before in his life. Um, can, can you talk to us about how you winded up uh, choosing that as your dedication for the survivalists? Well, I've also been fired in life. Um <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like to be honest it's a statement as to how much I've thought about it and not wanted to think about it and how much it's it's remained like a a focus in my life even though I haven't wanted it to I think it speaks to Aretha's complete and total obsession with it it unfortunately I, if it's happened to you it does tend to tend to be a big turning point in your life um and I just I but you know I hadn't really before writing this book come across a book that really hangs with it this long like i it's one of the biggest things that can happen to you in american culture and there's there are a ton of workplace novels i've read and enjoyed an absolute ton of them but just nobody hangs with the whole you do not have control of your career aspect of it and we don't like i i i come from one of those generations i feel like you guys are probably in this we are not going to work 40 years at the same job and just retire. We're going to work a bunch of jobs. I even, I've had a bunch of professions. I mean, before lawyering and before like the 30 million types of writing I did, I spent seven years in retail. Like I, you just, you have to teach yourself different skills and you have to keep moving on and stuff and yeah. you get, but yeah, it's, it's kind of the theme of the book is control. How do you control things and how do you respond to a lack of control? I felt like specifically speaking to getting fired would be the, the most direct thing I could say about how this is going to be a book about people struggling with a lack of control. See, philosophical and subtle. That's how, that's, that's how I like it. Um, could you, the most important, no, sorry the most interesting thing you researched that you ended up including in the survivalist. Hmm. Probably plagiarism. Hmm. I hmm. did not know how it worked. I just like every once in a while you hear those scandals and you're like, Oh, they lifted something. But I went deep into, well, how much are they lifting? How many times do they do it? What happens to these people afterwards? what sorts of things were they trying to lift? Like, what is the psychology behind it? I always feel like if I had plagiarized something, I would just spend the rest of my life, like, awake, unable to sleep. Sure that people would find me out. But the plagiarists that I'd studied didn't seem to be like that at all. They just kind of, this is going about your day, you know, doing your job, you know, even if you're lifting bits and pieces of somebody else's job for your job. It was very, like, <laughs> this isn't that big of a deal, is it? And I was shocked by that. <laughs> Yeah. I guess anything you do regularly, you can downplay like that. Most plagiarists lift over and over and over again. I think the average number of times they lift it was like 25 times. Like it's part of your process. It's oh, not wow. like something you do twice. And I was genuinely shocked to see that. I was shocked that somebody who was a writer would go, oh, well, this is just, you know, something I do on Tuesdays. I lift. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, 
no, I mean, it does make sense, though, that I guess because it is like a form of like, you know, thievery. So usually, you know, you're not just stealing something one time. Most people are kind of like they have a habit. So, yeah. damn, damn. Yeah. I've stolen it? Facebook statuses quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I appreciate this moment to come clean. Um, I'm not going to stop. Um, as you said, uh, it's just another Tuesday. Um, you know, but what can you do? But the thing that I'll say about that is, though, what are you stealing statuses that are already stolen? Because so many people's captions are like rap lyrics or something like that. Yeah, I don't really pay attention to the theft and the origin of it. I just think um, that I'm just a part of a long generation of art um, and survival. Yeah. (laughs) Straight up. Straight up. So your biggest literary influence or biggest literary influences? Um, Drake. <laughs> Drake. I actually. I will spend like hours listening to Jimmy Cooks. Jimmy Cooks is like my fight song this year. Um, I I made it in Vogue twice, and he's got that one lyric that's like, um, "Bitch, don't say you you model if you ain't been in Vogue." And Vogue, and so, you was like. Times I've appeared in Vogue, I've put that up. I'm shameless. I'm like, this is it. You know, this is what Drake meant. He meant that you should be on a list of anticipated books. (laughs) 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 Model now. Yeah, it's a wrap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Percival Everett, I swear, he's the guy where it's like, you can do everything. You can write about whatever you want to. I have the trees sitting next to me right now. I just read Telephone. I read Erasure a couple of years ago. Oh. I just finished Doctor No. I was like, here we go. Here's the black man. He's just like, you know what? We don't have to do all that junk that's expected of us. This doesn't have to be about slavery. It doesn't have to be about the Civil War. If you want to write about that stuff, that's fine. But what if you just want to write about some weird supervillain who's taking planes and like some weird dude whose philosophy is nothing? I love yeah. him. I like, yeah. you know, I feel like he inspires so many of the people I know in addition to me too. Just, you know, I'm I'm a black man. And I'm doing my own thing. Yeah. Yo, that was such a fulfilling answer. We love Percival here. Yeah. We love Percival ever. Yeah, I'm actually in Hattiesburg, like the place where the the, the agency was in the trees. Like I'm <laughs> there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I haven't finished Erasure yet, but I, I'm loving it so far. I got it. I'm I'm almost at the um the the novel within the novel. I can't. I know I'm be rolling when I read that shit. And that that's probably like reason. I'm gonna call that like five point five. Why I felt like we were friends already because he blurbed mm-hmm. your book and I was like, yo, she got a personal every blurb. That's that's mm-hmm. fucking crazy, yeah. you know? Because he doesn't even. I don't feel like he does them that often. So it's, that was just dope. I didn't either. I actually just wrote him out of the blue because I was like, well, this is going to be a hard book to categorize. Like, I know they're going to like sit there and they're going to put comps on it. But at the end of the day, I don't know what kind of book this is. And I don't know what people are going to consider it to be. Who's going to understand that? Percival Everett. I wrote him and he was just like, there's a big stack. And I was just like, oh, big stack. I don't know. And then he, yeah, he came through and I was shocked. Like, unbelievably. Yeah. It's amazing how many people I did not know on the blurb list who were just like, oh, this this is a great book. I want to stand behind it. Authors are nice. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you've been in Vogue. I mean, 
Yeah. <laughs> where most authors tend to appear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I'll, I'll say this and I'll ask the next wrap up, right? I, so, Percival Everett, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed I didn't think of him while I was thinking, while I was reading your book, because this is like something that like Percival probably would like write oh, yeah. too, right? Oh, yeah. And, um, I, I thought of, so who I thought of in part because your book is funny and because of the Richard Pryor um, epigraph, I thought of Fran Ross and Oreo. Mm. Yeah, I don't know if you've read that, but I, I was, yeah, yeah, I thought yeah. about, I thought about her while reading your work too. And that was kind of fire. I was like, yeah, this kind of remind me of like what Fran Ross might have done if she wrote like another novel or something like that. So, yeah, um, the book you want Achille and I to read if we haven't already read it. Hmm. And I'll even throw in finish based on my comment on erasure. <laughs> Man, this is tough. You guys both have so many books behind your head. I feel like you're just going to have read anything. I, I'm impressed by this. Um, it's funny because like authors do say that to us and every time they name a book we haven't read. Every time. Really? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. so many books, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah, but you you guys read. Let me see what I got. I've got this whole list of stuff. I know this is going to probably be... Well, no. You've heard of that. But we might not have read it, though. Seven Days in June by Tia Williams? Yeah, so I haven't haven't read that. (gasps) Somebody else told me that we should read that. Definitely got a copy. don't read romance, really. Like, I've just never connected to it, necessarily. And this isn't just romance. There's a lot of... um, the like it's just it's just deeper than that there's like a fake black literary community that i'm sorry that i can't belong to because it's in a book in this novel there's um like a lot of discussion about like addiction and how you come back from that in this there's a lot of discussion of single motherhood and how you're supposed to like make a good life for your kid in this but it's also just really funny you know like i like it's just like i'm a i'm a bored comedy professional i have standards this is a funny book (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, Seven Days in June, although it definitely has been called like a romance, it seems like it's been getting like literary treatment if there is such a thing. Like it doesn't seem to be floating in the same circles that you typically see a romance book flirting in, just like a uh, uh, floating in. Just like um there's this novel coming out um in in, in the summer called uh, Everything's Fine, right? I have seen it called mm-hmm. a romance, but it also seems like one that's like floating in like non-romantic circles. It's interesting how they just classify books and pitch them sometimes. So, no, yeah, Seven Days in June has bigger themes. I think that's why. I think yeah. sometimes, like if it's just a romance, like if it's genuinely just a love story, and there's not like a whole bunch of big chewy issue discussion, maybe that's why. But this this has like big deep things to say about. Um, in addition to all the stuff I just mentioned, there's a fantastic, like, toxic mom. Like, yeah. her mom is just trash. <laughs> and I love her! But in addition to being trash, like, she's Creole, and, and the main character is really, really fascinated by that side of her history and always wanted to do a book on it. And it's just the inspiration for a lot of what she likes about her family history and what she feels like she connects to. But, mm-hmm. um, and I was just fascinated with that. My, um, Louisiana relatives are Creoles. And so I was just like, oh, you know, what? Is, but I don't know that much about that. Like to me, it was just like, like a 
couple of food dishes and like a couple of stories. And so it was actually really cool to see somebody go deep on Creole, which I honestly was just like, is that just light skin? And she's same thing that I think. <laughs> They really wanted to be so much more. I mean, it has things, it has a culture, but you just light skin, dog. Like I eat gumbo too. Like I'm just yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. My cousin, my cousin's, you know, Creole, you know, or, or you know, on his mother's side or something like that. He's always going to you know on these diatribes. I'm just like, dude, you light skin. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> So you like crawfish at Tuffet. I mean, go off. You know, you know, a few French words. So does everyone else in the world. <laughs> yeah. Call call me basic without telling me I'm basic. <laughs> and and it like, you don't understand. They speak French. And I'm like, yeah, but but like what else is there? Like Comment really allez-vous? Like, I mean, <laughs> Yeah, it really grinds their gears when I do that to them too. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's on me. Um, tell us who you would like to see as a guest on Books or Pop Culture. But if you are connected with this person, you must disclose said connection so that we too can become connected. Okay. Um we have the same editor so maybe this is cheating but in august there's a book coming out called liquid snakes and it is um it's funny it there's a coffee maker it's really the dark side of coffee it is definitely so what if we knew all about aaron's dark side is one of the things i kept thinking when i read it but it's also about like pollution in black communities and how it ends Mm. up affecting like just generations of folks get killed by these chemicals that they put in our neighborhoods and just what happens, you know, if you got revenge for that. And I was just absolutely blown away. I blurbed it. Okay. Like I (laughs) deeply connected this book. I, but I, I would stand up for this one. I've been telling people about it for about a month. It's called liquid snakes. The author is Stephen Kearse. It'll be out on soft skull sometime in August. And it's funny and fun but it's also deep. There's a CDC that ends up sort of investigating crime. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of mysterious deaths and there are some there's this association of like black chemists of the southeast and they are like they're all based in like Atlanta and they're all just like, you know, we're the black chemists. We're kind of militant about it and all. Yeah, no. It's it's like I really feel like you guys would like that. Yeah. It sounds It sounds something like a book twin. Kind of when they yeah. sent it to me, I was like, What? Like Mensa has taste. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. No, that's uh, thank you for that. Thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, Even yeah. if you're listening, you know, reach out to us. We'd love to have you. Yes, um, yes, I'm down for that. Yeah. One thing and, though, it's really Atlanta. Like it's not like my book in that it is one hundred percent Atlanta. Like it is very, very at one point there's like a Gucci Main mural and <laughs> Oh, wow. So it's not my book. It's it's very Atlanta. It's very it, the other part of it's set in Birmingham. It's yeah, but like yeah, you guys should get your hands on this one. Yeah, no, Wait. thank you, thank you for that, uh, wreck too. Seriously, um, and yeah. of course, easiest question of them all. Um, 
tell us what you're able to share about what's next for you and uh, the best place for people to go to follow your journey, whether that's a website, social media, whatever the case may be. Um, I'm working on another novel that is not in good shape to really like talk, talk about, but it is happening. Like it's flowing along. Like I, I have good flow every day. And if you want to learn more, I am on Instagram. My handle is also Kashana Kali, all one word. I'm on Twitter my, where my handle is also Kashana Kali, all one word, however long Twitter is going to last. Um, <laughs> <laughs> someday I swear I'm going to contribute to my Substack, which is called deadly butter knife entertainment. But for the meantime, like probably Insta or Twitter. Nice. Okay. Kashana, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Seriously. This has been a blast. Uh, yeah. Your book is definitely a blast. Y'all go ahead Get your copy of Survivalist, please. And preferably from bookshop.org slash shop slash books of pop culture. Uh, for Kashana Kali in Achille, Missouri, I'm Reggie Bailey. This has been another edition of Books of Pop Culture. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Peace, please.